<sighs> on today's <laughs> <laughs> whatever I'm doing it on today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom. God bless Montana. Somebody give me an amen. 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 Now. It's not the end times debates that are annoying. It's the people having them. And I never lie. Never. Never. It's episode 89. Turn it up! And today's episode is dedicated to Montana Public Libraries. This one's for you. That was classy how you... I was trying not to make it too loud. You know? Open that can of Coke right on the right on the snare. Nice. All right, Montana Public Libraries. I have recently fallen in love with Montana Public Libraries. Oh, also, uh, a secondary dedication to my wife's sourdough. Oh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's out of this world, man. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, babe. Sourdough rocks. Uh, Montana Public Libraries, because this is from a uh, newspaper article, um, MontanaFreePress.org has reported that the Montana State Library withdraws from the National Association. Commission votes to pull Montana's membership in the American Library Association, citing President's Marxist beliefs, sparking concern among local librarians. I read excerpts from this article. A seven-member commission voted Tuesday to immediately withdraw the Montana State Library from membership in the American Library Association, a national nonprofit founded in 1876 that advocates for and provides services to tens of thousands of libraries across the country. The Montana State Library Commission decision came in in response to a 2022 tweet posted by the ALA president, Emily Drabinsky, uh, describing herself as a Marxist lesbian, which quickly drew the attention of conservative media outlets nationwide. In his motion to immediately withdraw the state library from the association, Commissioner Tom Burnett directed that a letter be sent to the ALA explaining that our oath of office and resulting duty to the Constitution forbids association with an organization led by a Marxist. Finally, somebody gets it. All right, Burnett was joined by five other members of the commission in supporting the motion among them. Uh, State superintendent, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, Newly seated Commissioner Brian Rossman, we're going to hear from him in a second, who works as an associate professor at the Montana State University Library, cast the sole opposing vote to the withdrawal. So, what do you know? A state university professor was the one that was opposed to this. Just thought I'd point that out for a second. Think about that before you pick a school. Here we go. He said... uh, Well, somebody else said, I think it's a really good move to send a really clear signal to our national organizations that we are not in agreement with the direction they are taking these organizations. Uh, Likening the motion to the Montana School Board's Association decision last year to withdraw the national to withdraw them from the National School Board Association. So Montana Public uh, Education Services and such is on a tear saying uh, we got values and when we don't align with it, we're just not going to participate anymore, which I say is America. You can vote with your feet. You can vote with your participation. You can vote with your dollars. I think this should have all happened a long time ago, and I think that we should do this on a local level here because I went to the library in West Richland and they were pushing. Yeah, I think I could say that. Yeah. It was definitely a push. They were pushing the uh, the, the drag queen uh, books on my kids, which I did not appreciate. So I like Montana. Instead of pursuing long-term viability and future of, of future libraries supporting the traditional role of acquisition, preservation, and circulation of materials, ALA desires to inject the library into the vanguard of the culture wars. And they just said, that's not the place for the library. So I say, folks, this is how we do responsible, neighbor-loving community involvement. And you don't have to be crazy, and you don't have to give all of your time to, you know, attend every meeting that's out there and whatever. But this is just parents being parents, saying, hey, we want our kids to, uh, to... be exposed to materials that we, by and large, approve of, and they took steps to do that. So, to the Montana State Library System, I say thank you for your courage, and whatever that costs you to withdraw from that, way to rock, people. And my wife's sourdough is amazing. Let's get some wisdom. Today's daily dose, no, weekly dose, I guess, we're on Mondays. Weekly dose of wisdom comes from Proverbs 6. Verse 19, or 16 through 19, we're going to narrow in on verse 17 again, the second half of it. There are six things which Yahweh hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, 
a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. We're going to take a look at that lying tongue part because, gosh, I hate it when people lie to me. Now, why do we hate it so much when people lie to us? Because it's rude. When people lie to me, I can't operate with high-quality information. Sometimes I'll make bad decisions, right? Because I just didn't get the real stuff. I can't trust them the next time I want information from them. Plus, it's just disrespectful. But one thing it's not. Lying is not an offense against my very nature. Lying is not antithetical to who I am at my core. My nature is to lie, cheat, understate, overstate, misdirect, all of that stuff. Because my nature is fallen and sinful. As kids, our parents did not have to teach us how to lie, did they? No, sir, no, they did not. But they had to scratch, claw, and cry and bleed to teach us how to tell the truth. And that's true for all kids. Because, like Psalm 116, verse 11 says, all men are liars. And so as offensive as lying is to us, it is infinitely more repulsive to God because it is absolutely contrary to his nature. And it goes against the reason for which we were created, which is to show forth his nature and his glory in all of creation. It messes things up in his creation so that it doesn't work like it's supposed to. And did I mention it's rude? Now, I get lied to all the time. You know why? Because I'm a pastor. And as I've often said, the only person that gets lied to more than a pastor is a cop, maybe a judge. You could probably put a judge in there as well. But people be lying to pastors, boy. You try asking for straight answers. It's like, no, when people are in sin, it's like plan A to cover it up with a lie. Right? Are you are you sleeping with your girlfriend? No, no, Pastor. We live in the same house, but we're not doing anything sinful. Mm-hmm. Did you tell your wife she's a curse upon your being and you wish that you never met her? No, no. I told her she has beautiful eyes and she just misunderstood me, Pastor. Mm-hmm. True, <laughs> true story. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I don't. I, I do believe it. <laughs> it's like I do not doubt you. How about this one? Are you ready to repent of your sin? Yes, Pastor. Dirty rotten lie. I get lied to all the time. And the list goes on and on. But this goes on the list of things that God hates, right? Because if you disrespect someone enough to lie to them, you're showing contempt for their dignity, and God just disagrees. You've made yourself an, an opponent to God at that point. Plus, when people lie, they are doing so for some perceived benefit to themselves, right? So what that means is that they're elevating themselves above the other person. They're, they're the... the uh, needs of the liar become more important to the liar than the needs of the person to whom they are lying. So that's the opposite of love because love is when you consider somebody else's needs as more significant than your own. Yeah. Okay. But what about a white lie, right? Hey, honey, does this dress me make, make me look fat? What's the white lie there? <laughs> it's not a lie. You just said I was so blinded by your beauty. I can't, I can't, I, I, I don't know. I can't tell you. That's, that's a, a good answer because the last one that I heard was the husband came back and said, does that dress make you look fat? Does this shirt make me look stupid? I'm not answering that. <laughs> <laughs> Both would be accurate. He bought a new couch that day, so he did yeah. get to <laughs> remake the interior of the house. <laughs> but we consider white lies to be clean because we think they don't hurt anybody, right? Yeah. But here's the deal with white lies. You may not be able to see the negative effects of them, but they're still poison to the heart of the liar. They still break relationships and trust when they're discovered, and to a certain degree, even when they're not. And most importantly, they are one step away from the character of God. Every white lie quote that you tell is a further step away from the character of God. And if the point of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ, then lying is literally running the opposite direction from the reason that we were created. Now, from an earthly standpoint... There was, you know, I don't know. Well, I'll just say this. There's a really interesting little book by Sam Harris. And and Sam Harris is a, a famous and militant atheist. Deep thinker, philosopher type dude, you know. But I guess he was a neuroscientist and now he's kind of making his thing as a philosopher. But he wrote a really interesting little book. It was actually just a long form essay on, um, on lying. And in fact, it was just called Lying. And he traced through all the practical implications of lying and made the case a completely godless but but um, observational case that lying is never the right thing to do, like ever. He even got into war and all that kind of stuff, right? And his, his case was, if you're lying in war, that's, it's not right. It's just a total sacrifice of morals for the higher good. So that still doesn't make lying right. But he went through all of these examples of times when it's tempting to lie and traced out the implications of what happens when you do and what happens when you don't and made a very compelling case that lying is actually never the right thing to do. I would disagree with him on the, the warfare part, but it was still an interesting case. And so here you have a guy 
who, without a god to guide his morals, can realize just from the pragmatics of it that lying is evil. He, he basically, from a secular position, in earthly logic, proved God right, according to earthly logic. So, you know, they would say, well, you don't need God to be a moral person. Well, when it comes to lying, you either need God or you need some logic. But if you take either of these things at face value, we are not going to be lying to each other because God was right when he said it 3,000 years ago. Lying is terrible, and that is why God hates it. Now, there is one exception in the Bible to when lying is evil, and that is in warfare. But we will get into that, I think, in our first question. So let me bring in the crew. We got Super Ben. Who are you talking about? I'm talking about you, my man. The Bearded <laughs> oh, Beaver. The Bearded Beaver. What up, I'll big take dog? That. All right. That actually was my name back in the day. Super Ben? I, oh, yeah. And oh, that was yeah. my nickname when I was in uh, youth ministry down in California. Okay. It was known as that. Did they, did they literally, like, the kids in your youth ministry oh, call oh, yeah. you Superman? I was always mm-hmm. Superman. All right. Yeah. Junior high camps, all the different camps. Because I, I I used to own, like, a bazillion Superman shirts now. That was yeah. just your thing. Now I own a, a bazillion shirts from the Oregon State, Oregon State Beavers. Beavers. <laughs> yeah. And various uh, various insignia and paraphernalia in you your know, office. There's flags all over my office, yeah. I walked in there the other day, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, my eyes won't focus. Where did all this orange come from? Did <laughs> some construction worker throw yeah. up in here or something like that? You're going to walk outside in the construction site next door. They're going to be like, hey, grab a shovel. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And we got Bailey, the podcast princess. Good to have you, sis. And I think we've got some thises and thats that Bailey is going to read and try and keep us on track. It's not looking good. Given by how many starts we uh, we had to go through to get this episode even started, I don't think it's looking good. No. Yeah. Alrighty. But it could are... be fun. So buckle your seatbelts. We'll let the listeners be the judge of that. Give us five stars if you think we earned it, and if you don't, then you're probably not listening still. So, uh, you know, rate, subscribe, like, five stars, 16 exclamation marks. I don't know what all the tech language is, but, you know. Do it. It helps the algorithm. Smash that like button. Smash the like button. Ring Don't that bell. Don't forget to subscribe. Smash that like button. <laughs> well done. Alrighty. Ooh. Music is still on. Sorry. All right. Question number one. 90 episodes in. I still haven't figured out how to run the board. <laughs> All right. You guys ready? Probably not. So question number one from GWC. God seems to approve of lying in the Bible. What? This seems like a contradiction in his character. Can you please explain? And so the first section they give us is 1 Samuel 21, verse 10, all the way through 22, verse 1. And then the second um, passage they give us is 1 Kings 22, uh, verses 19 through 23. Okay, so we hit the 1 Kings 22 one a little bit in the last week's uh, episode. So you got 1 Samuel 21. I have 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. I'll take the other one. All right, and I'll keep going. So, and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall I shall this fellow come into my house? Then David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So, I, I guess I don't see the problem here. Yeah, I mean, maybe David's employing some deception or or, or pretend, but... Well, and one of the things yeah. with narrative is, you know, narrative oftentimes doesn't say whether something's right or wrong. It just says, yeah. here's what happened. So I don't really see any commentary as to whether that was whether God approves or disapproves of that. It's just kind of what He did. Yeah, I think that may, that might be a, a principle of do narrative does not equal normative or description does not equal prescription, right? So mm-hmm. in other words, we're not we're not saying well David did this. For example, we we know that David was was a man after God's own heart, but we certainly don't say well he did everything right because there's a, there's that whole section with Bathsheba, right? So, yeah, but God did judge that one yeah. specifically, and He right? did, and He did declare it. Yeah, yeah. So God God's inaction on David's pretending might be the uh the argument right god didn't judge david for 
Yeah, so like uh, the Hebrew midwives. Yes. They lied. I think that's right? a great example. And God blessed them specifically, it seems yeah. like, because they lied. Then in chapter 4, I was just preaching this on Sunday, that that uh, Moses lied to his father-in-law, and God didn't really do anything. Well, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean it was yeah. virtuous. Now, the Hebrew midwives, they they lied in such a way that preserved life, and God rewarded them. Yeah. Which is actually the, the uh, rabbinical explanation of stuff, is that there's... The, um, there are hierarchies of consequences mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And so to preserve life is the highest good. And so mm-hmm. to lie in order to preserve life, the, the Jewish rabbis would say, is a moral good. And, the, the, of course, the classic example of this is, are you hiding any Jews in here? Asked the SS officer. And if you say yes, you've committed a moral evil. And if you lie, you've committed yeah. a moral good, right? Yeah. So they would say that from, and, and they they say this is God's perspective on it. I think this is rabbinic tradition rather than, Bible, but these are, you know, God-loving people who've mm-hmm. come to the conclusion that to preserve life is the highest good. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't think I disagree with that, and especially because, you know, essentially these are also the enemies of God, right? So I'm yeah. not... So screw them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. If, if you're going to go to battle against people of God, it's a bad idea. Right. You can't be like, he lied to me. It's like, you've been murdering my people. Like, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> don't lecture me about morals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, so yeah. I think that's probably it. I mean, we can make more of it, but but I think that yeah, that first of all, you've got the first principle of of narrative does not equal you know some kind of prescription, right? God's describing something, or or in this case, Samuel under the authority of the Holy Spirit is is prescribe is not prescribing an action; he is describing what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, these were the enemies of God, <laughs> and David was you know fleeing from another enemy of God. Can I say something dangerous here? Uh-oh. Uh, I get a lot of pushback when I say this, yeah. but I have not yet been shown to be incorrect. So maybe this will, maybe today's the day Okay, on this one. Um, so the, the Ninth Commandment, don't bear false witness, right? Yeah. It says don't bear false witness against your neighbor, neighbor right? Now, Jesus comes along and says, well, who is my neighbor, right? Well, of course, in a sense, there's like all men are our neighbors. Yeah. But the law, you know, was the, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law were given for Israel. And so there was a clear distinction then between these are the people who are who with whom you are peoples and the people with whom you are not. There was an inside and outside type of thing. And then Jesus came and just obliterated all of that because the kingdom of God is here, right? Mm-hmm. So to there's there's an interesting debate to be had as to whether an Israelite in the Old Testament lying to a Moabite would have broken the ninth commandment because the context also is a legal one, right? It's, it's like yep. bearing false witness. You're talking about testimony in, in public and in court and things like that. So we could make the argument that that's just outside of the context in which the ninth commandment was, was written. So I don't know. It's a thought. Yeah. It's a, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily like where it goes. Yeah. That's my, that'd be my only concern is that where does that go? Yeah. You but know? you can't, you can't base theology on its consequences, right? You got to see what's in the word and what's yeah. in the word is seemingly, it seems to me that it leaves room for, you know, um, dealing with people who are not your people group's friends in such a way as to avoid, you know, violence or something like that. Well, and like you mentioned in warfare, I mean, I'm not going to sit there and declare my intentions to attack in this particular spot. I might even feign uh, an attack over on one side of the wall so that I can go after the other side of the wall. Happened in World War II, right? There, there were all these false communications going out that... Mm-hmm. Uh, that the D-Day attack by the Americans was going to be on this beach over here. So they even put like fake uh, tanks up there and they put, uh, they put fake communications out from units mm-hmm. that didn't even exist and Hitler bit. And so that's yeah. why the German defenses were down in, in, uh, at Normandy. You know, one of the, I think Al Mohler on one of his thinking out in public podcasts, he interviews a CIA agent or something like that. And they talk Sweet. about it, it. I think, I believe the agent was a Catholic, but they were wrestling with the ideas of morality as you're in the in the especially in the foreign intelligence services mm-hmm. and things like that, how do you, as a Christian or as a Catholic at this point, he was, how do you, from a moral perspective, go in here and you're just telling a bunch of lies? Mm-hmm. You, you know, how do you do that? And he's, you know, and it was a really interesting conversation. I would encourage anybody to to listen to it. Um, yeah, and I think even if even if it's justified or justifiable for that CIA agent, let's say. Um, that does take a toll on the human soul. Right? Yes. Oh, totally. Right. So there's like you. You might not be sinning, but you're also not 
acting in a way that's conducive to your own good. So you might have to sacrifice that for national interests. I get that. But that doesn't make it a desirable course of action. It's kind of a bummer. But speaking of warfare, that's actually the context of First uh, Kings 22. What were the verses here? We got 19 to 23. All right. <laughs> this is such a weird passage. I love this one. <laughs> <laughs> you get a peek behind the veil here and see what's going on in the spiritual uh, realm. Now, therefore, behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit into the mouth of all these your prophets, and Yahweh has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, sure, uh, came <laughs> near and struck Micaiah on the cheek. I think I need to back up. I think that might be... Oh, I started at 23. That's what it is. So verse 19. So Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. And Yahweh said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So God's laying a a snare. He's laying a trap for King Ahab. And one said one thing and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh saying, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit into the mouth of all these, your prophets. Yahweh has declared disaster for you. And then Micaiah got punched in the face by one of the false prophets. And he said, okay, well, see what happens then. He said, if King Ahab comes back alive, I'm a false prophet. But don't worry, that's not going to happen. So God literally told one of his angels, like, well, actually, it was the angel's idea. God was, like, holding heavenly court. And he's like, all right, guys, how are we going to trick this guy into walking into his own death? And some angel was like, I'll go, uh, you know, lie. And God was like, really? How are you going to do that? And he says, through the mouth of the prophets. And God's like, I like it. I sign off on that. So God sent an angel to lie. Dude, like, what? What do we do with the ethics of this? I don't, I mean, I think, I think that if you're talking about warfare and I think that that is, I think there's a, there's legitimacy to that. Based on? I mean, I I don't know. Maybe I'm just looking at it from the human side, but I just look at, I I just look at like, for example, even if, even if I'm like in a sparring match or something like that Mm -hmm. with somebody, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to fake an act. Right. So that I can, so I can get him on the other side. That's what I would do. You, you know, juke him real quick. I totally would yeah. juke. You know, and that's that that in that in a sense is deception, right? You got so, moves, Ben. I have no moves. That's you got what, moves. I bet you got moves. I don't move. I bet, I bet you're deceiving, deceiving me right now, just in case nope. you ever got to take me on. No, nope. I have right. no moves whatsoever. Okay, I think you got game. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you can't rock a sweatshirt like that and a beard like that and tell me that you can't throw down. <laughs> you know you can. If I had to, probably, but it would not be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Rogan would not approve of my technique at all. <laughs> it would be an ugly win. It would be a very ugly win, and I probably would be I would be in the chiropractor for weeks after. Yeah, well, fair enough. Do what you got to do. I, when I when I think about God using a spirit to lie to a rebellious king, the, the thought comes to my head: I don't really care. Like I'm kind of cool with that. You know, I mean. I think there's an ethical difference if if I decided to do that. I would have to wrestle with some some ethics here. Is this, a, is this an okay time? Is this a morally justified time to practice deception? But when I see God doing it, I'm like, all right, he's got to figure it out. Like, I just don't really struggle with it, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think maybe there's a desire to maybe preserve God's reputation, but it's like God's reputation is pretty darn clear. Yeah, he I mean, can I don't that himself. Yeah, don't don't think, mess with him. That's yeah, the reputation. That's, that's essentially it, right? I mean, <laughs> even even in Romans nine, when Paul says, "You know, who are you to talk back to God?" Right? I mean, yeah. how do we how do we um, how do we sit there and we do? I think that I, as a human, can stand above the Almighty and say, "What have you done?" You know, that's mm-hmm. I. Mm, you know, I'm. I, I think that we, this goes back even to what we were talking about last time, blurring that creator creature distinction. I am not a peer. With God, he he gets to dictate the terms of the relationship. He and 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 he gets he does whatever he pleases. <laughs> you know, he can do whatever. And and I'm not saying that he's you know capricious or anything like that. He's not like the gods of the of the Roman pantheon. In fact, it's interesting that even in declaring what went on there in First Kings 21, he's being open about it. That's true. <laughs> he's saying, "Hey, guys, let's do this." Yeah. And he and he and it's not like he's trying to be deceptive. He's not. You know, he's not like you know. Sometimes they the, the 
the Roman or the Greek gods, right? What would they do? They would come down in, in the form of humans just to, you know, sleep with the ladies or whatever to have their party. And it was always deception that was involved in some of that. Mask wearing. Yeah, and not now. Yeah. You know, God's like, this is what it is. Yeah, uh, Psalm eighteen twenty six. With the purified, you show yourself pure, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous, twisted. Mm-hmm. Or to the shrewd, you show yourself shrewd in some yeah. translations. Yeah. How about this? How about, well, no, I guess that wouldn't. I was thinking about Jesus when he tells parables specifically so that people will not understand him. It's withholding truth from people. But I guess that's a little different. How about the ethics of some of the stuff that, uh, I mean, you and I don't do this stuff on the mission field, obviously, but guys that look like us, whose names rhyme with our names, have been known to do, you know, certain things to get into countries. Smuggling Bibles. Illegal act. Hey, what you got in there? You got any Bibles? Right? Yeah. What do you do for a living? Tell me on this visa application. The customs agent says, why are you in this country? To visit a friend. <laughs> yeah. Which is true. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we, we, did, <laughs> we, did a, uh, we did a podcast with uh, uh, Dan Baber a while ago, right? And, and he was, because he was ministering in a closed country for yeah. a long time. Yeah. And so we talked about some of the ethics of that. And that was, that was fascinating. Yeah. How you navigate that line. I want to read that Brother Andrew book. That's just what I was thinking. Were about. you? Yeah, yeah, God Smuggler, right? Well, he wrote another one called The Ethics of Smuggling. Ooh. Yeah, short little thing. I keep meaning to read it. I just haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah. Should be good. All right. Well, yeah, I I, uh, I think we've about beat that horse. I mean, God can lie when he wants to <laughs> to his enemies. And uh, I think we in this room are... I mean, I... And, I... and I think the difference between, you know, like bearing false... Like you mentioned, bearing false witness against your neighbor, right? There's There's that... There's that issue that you, you brought out, but in in these two particular examples, especially the one is David, you know there was a there was a strategy involved in in preserving, like you mentioned, preserving life. Yeah, right. So that's not that I, I would I would say deception and strategic deception. Probably, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'd go well. That's out and outright lying. You know, and I, I know I'm probably splitting hairs there, and I, I didn't even sound good as I just mentioned it, but um, <laughs> but there is a different category of morality here. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's just like well, all all misstatements are. You know, we there was a there was an individual that um, forgot. I was I, I was I was speaking with a um, uh, a pastor friend about an an issue at his particular church, and they had laid out these plans. And um, someone had mentioned to him that uh, that there might be some problems with this, and as they can, and he, he went, oh, "Okay, great." And then he went forward and uh, continued with those plans, and then got up in front of the congregation and said, "Hey, we we thought this worked out great, but looks like it didn't." And you know, this other individual was trying to say, "Well, you know, you lied. You know, I warned you." And it's like, "Well." Hmm. I don't think that's deception. Yeah, that's you know, and and and, and we just got to be careful about that because I think there's also a there's also an intention of the heart, right? You know, especially in 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 uh, bearing false witness against your neighbor, right? Especially in the with the, especially if you read the Old Testament law. I mean, for theft, the consequences were pretty brutal. Yeah, you know, so you lie, someone loses a hand. Yeah, you lie, someone loses their life. You lie, someone. Loses their inheritance, all that. Well, not their inheritance, but they lose. They lose a ton of stuff. Yeah. So or in Jacob's case, he lied and got and he got his brother's inheritance. So well, that was. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Again, narrative, right? Yes. <laughs> not exactly. prescriptive. Anyway. Yeah. So uh, lying in terms of like espionage and acts of war. Any disagreements here? Um, in terms of espionage and war, I mean, in war that makes sense, especially like, I guess if. I can see it making sense for that. I guess some of the, when it comes to lying, I can see how it's hard to, to when reading those passages, trying to get like, okay, if God is perfect and he's holy and he is set apart and he can't sin, but then it seems like, or at least it looks like he's okay with either the angels lying and saying, okay, go do that. Or maybe um, like someone else lying and then like not necessarily acting on that. It can be a little like, I don't know what to to do with this necessarily. I don't know how to put that in a category because I know that he's set apart. I know that he's holy, but also what do I do with these other situations that from my eye look like, okay, well, this is something we're told not to do. Mm-hmm. So why is he doing it? It seems mm-hmm. that's where it can be hard to, I don't know. 
think yeah. about that. Yeah. I wonder if there's a category also where, um, like, like God, God gets to claim certain things that we don't get to claim, right? Um, and he gets to do certain things that we don't get to do. And I wonder if we could put this inside of that category. So, like, to create a false prophecy, which God clearly just did, right? If we do that, we're under serious judgment, right? Woe to the prophets who prophesy from their own imagination. Jeremiah 23 is all over this thing, right? Now, I will visit you for your misdeeds, which is one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible. And now God gets to do that. We don't because we just haven't been given that power or that that freedom the same way that we weren't given the fruit, you know? Um, little nerdy example here. There's a word for create, which is bara. And there's another word for create, which is more like to form or something like that. But nobody gets to bara except God, because that's to create out of nothing, right? And so we can claim to have created, I mean, whatever, our children or to have built our house. But really, we were just forming them from substance that God already made. And so only God gets to do some of these things. And if we claim to do it, then that's, that's essentially illegal. That's taking God's place. So maybe it's in that category. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to have to... I'm gonna have to play with this a little bit more because I do think I I do think that there is some good there's some good ethical conversations to be had. Yeah. But um, but I also yeah I, I at the risk of sounding like it's a total scapegoat or a total cop out like situational yeah, ethics. Yeah. I, I, it's it's you know yeah God is in charge and 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 frankly he's writing a story and he's crafting a narrative and there's an awful lot more evil stuff that God actually sets in place. You know the crucifixion of his son. That is uh, the 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 that is the destruction of an evil of of, a, of an innocent man as though he were evil. He sanctioned yeah. a murder. So, so to so if you know is there as I'm thinking about the whole narrative of the Old Testament, is it pushing towards what, what what's all that pushing towards? Mm-hmm. It's pushing towards God showing his justice and his mercy. And so, do those do those acts, even though they are not ethical in maybe in a in a two-dimensional you know horizontal view but when you're when you're crafting the narrative yourself you kind of have the license to do whatever you want you yeah know? sovereignty yeah i think that's where you started us actually with that yeah one. but it sounds but it's and it sounds like a cop-out and i and i get that eh. you know but it's also it, it 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 also is there's there needs to be that humble creature creator distinction yeah and i don't think it's a cop-out i think i think there's a point where you reach the end of the logical regression fair and, and the end is god's in charge yeah so yeah, yeah. i like it yeah. yeah okay all righty cool ready for another question two let's do it probably not all right question two do babies go to heaven when they die yeah so question three Oh, that was no, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So the quick primer on this. Um, yeah, this now the reason the babies go to heaven when they die is, is a more difficult conversation for me. Like how that fits into the gospel, that's a little trickier for me, but the fact that they do is seems to me to be biblically pretty beyond discussion. So for example, not beyond discussion, but beyond question, uh, Job chapter three i think it is well i know it's chapter three i think it's verse 13 maybe (laughs) yeah okay so job is lamenting the worst day in human history right and he's basically saying why was i born okay so he says i I don't want to be born i wish i had died he says for then i would have lain down and been quiet i would have slept then and i would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt uh, ruins for themselves with princes who are uh, who had gold who filled their houses with silver or why was i not uh, why was i not as a hidden stillborn child as infants who never see the light there the wicked cease from their troubling and there the weary are at rest there the prisoners ease to get are at ease together and they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the greater there, the slave and the, the and the slave is free from his master. So, what he's saying is, if I had died when I was a baby, I'd have been in a place of peace, right? I would have been in a good place. Then you take the classic example out of Second oh, Samuel twelve, with um, you know when when David's uh, sin with Bathsheba is judged by the mm-hmm. the death of his firstborn child. Um, where'd you go? 
I'm going to go with 2 Samuel 12, let's say 12 to 14 maybe. Reaching way back in the vault. I have sinned against the Lord. David's child dies. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Okay, so he's, he's grieving. He's mourning. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. They were worried he was going to kill himself. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of Yahweh and worshipped. He then went into his own house and when he asked they set food before him and he ate and then his servant said to him why what is this thing that you have done you fasted and wept for the child while he was alive but when the child died you arose and ate food and he said well while the child was still alive i fasted and wept for i said who knows whether yahweh will be gracious to me that the child may live but now he is dead why should i fast can i bring him back again i shall go to him but he will not return to me now, we know what David's expectation for the afterlife was. It was to walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 116, it was to um, be in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23, we know what David's eschatology was, and it was a place of paradise, and he expects to meet his baby there. So David, having a prophetic voice, even though he didn't hold the prophetic office, he issued plenty of prophecies. Um, I'm taking him at his word on that one. Also, you've got Ecclesiastes, I believe it's chapter 11, um, where it says something like, as you do not know the way that the spirit comes upon the bones of a baby in the womb of a woman with child, so you do, do not know the, the things of God who determines all things from the beginning to the end. But that tells you that the spirit is sent to a baby in the womb, the spirit of life, essentially. So you've got, you've got the spirit there, right, of life. You see this in John the Baptist when Jesus shows up and he leaps for joy. You've got a baby in the womb that has joy, right? So there's a life there. And the question is, what happens to the life and the expectation of the Old Testament saints is that they are in a place of peace with the Lord. Hmm. I So, I'm going to get dark. Do it. Okay. So, if that's the case, what's the most merciful thing a parent then can do for their kid? Ah, this is an excellent question from, and I'm not, I'm not kicking you here. Yeah. This, is a, this is a question that we get from the pro-abortion crowd. Right, yeah. like, why are you so mad about abortion? Because and, that kid's in heaven. By the way, I'm 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 asking this question as an, as uh, okay, not as the devil's advocate, because obviously that would be <laughs> an advocate for the devil. But as but a preface to, to something, yeah, yeah. Well, no, just to, to, to let's flesh this out yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit, you know, yeah. because that's going to be a question that people ask, Absolutely. right? Which is what they do. It's asked a lot. Yeah, yeah, and so again, I'll go back to a statement that I made a few minutes ago, where we don't want to determine our doctrine based on what we think the implications are. We just want to go with the text, and then mm-hmm. we can take the implications of it from there. But with that one. You know, the most merciful thing that a parent could do would be to agree with God because God's plans are best for this child. And if God deems that the child should live, then for us yeah. to take the child's life would be would be not only murder, yeah. but would be an act of great what's the opposite of mercy? I mean unmercy. It would be dismercy. It would yeah. be it would be horrendous. So we we you know, Genesis eighteen says that God is the judge of all the earth and he shall do right. So when we yeah. try to override his position, that does not constitute mercy or a gift to the child. Yeah. Because gift uh, life is a gift from God. Yeah. Right? Yeah, certainly, and I and I think that there's also you know aspects of of um, where was I going with this? I was thinking you know what what you know where do babies go or where you know is my child who passes away in heaven? It's like look, I, I here's what I can speak to. It is not therefore dependent upon man's desire or effort. It's God's grace, grace and mercy. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to rest in the trust. I'm, I'm going to rest in the justice of God. As he as he mets all that out, versus me trying to say, well, okay, here's here here's here's my logical paradigm. I'm going to trust that, that God, the, the again, the Judge of all the earth, mm-hmm. is going to is going to say, okay, here here's here's where you are. Yeah, where it gets sketchy, and this is this is where the the um, kind of classical Calvinist position has gone is that you know all of humanity is born into sinfulness, right? And so they're like, well. If, if there's a sinful state of humanity and the child's born there and they never repent and believe the gospel, 
then they can't go to heaven. And so it's like, I'm like, dang, you guys are heartless. But again, you can't determine your theology based on what you consider to be compassionate, right? That's imposing an external standard mm-hmm. on the text. And so it, it does get tricky because no matter which, which direction you go with this, you can, you can wind up with sort of this unanswerable question. Either babies are born innocent, holy, and not sinful until they commit their first sin. But that's called Pelagianism, and that's one of the ancient heresies that, you know, like Augustine argued extremely effectively against, right? Yep. Like, no, we're born sinful. We're not born godly. All flesh is fallen. I mean, even David, so David, who expects to see his baby in heaven, says that in Psalm 50. Is that what you were doing? That's exactly right. Get out of my head, Ben. No. (laughs) But he says, in sin, my mother conceived me, right? I was born in iniquity. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) And so... You, you do have these twin truths where on one hand, the baby is in sin when he's born. Now, on the other hand, you also have this weird truth that the baby actually has never rebelled against God. And so what sin would God actually be judging at that point? So you, you, you wind up grasping for a standard of justice that God would be, would be upholding there. And you can't really find one because like with a miscarriage, for example, or, or a, yeah. a stillbirth yeah. or whatever, there is no sin. Like there, there's, it's just yeah. not, it hasn't been committed. And so that gets, that's why I say it's a little harder to figure out where this fits into the gospel because mm-hmm. at each camp has to have a semicolon at the end of their justification by faith alone. And we don't add to it, but we have to figure out where to put this situation in our, in our gospel. Because when the baby is too young to have faith, then how is it that they can expect to be seen in heaven? Yeah. Right. How's that even possible at all? So this is what I'm about to say is just kind of my formulation of this. Okay. Um, the, the the sort of newer Calvinist perspective is the age that the baby dies doesn't change the election of God. So if they're elect, they go to heaven, and if they're not elect, they go to hell, same as if they're 55 when they die, right? Again, I think that's that's just kind of drawing a conclusion based on your pre-existing theological system. I don't, I don't, the text doesn't say that anywhere. And so my conclusion on this is that if a baby dies before they're able to you know, have faith. I mean, whatever, before that, that happens, let's, let's talk about a miscarriage, right? That would be evidence of God's election for them because he saved them preemptively from the sin that they would have been damned to hell on account of. Yeah. Right. So I, I think that that, that makes sense of all the information. Babies go to heaven when they die. There's also a, an argument that I have out of Romans seven, but I'm going to keep that one out of this. Cause I think it would drive you nuts <laughs> and I might be wrong about it because I usually, when I disagree with you, I get nervous, but, um, <laughs> but definitely in the Old Testament, and if I'm right about Romans 7 in the New Testament, then biblically, we've got, we've got this expectation that babies are in heaven, and we have no expectation of the contrary. And so I think that if, if a baby dies, that is, and, and we look at that as God's evidence of choosing to save them, and that is a sign of their, that is making their election and their calling sure, then that makes sense of all the biblical information. Yeah, I don't... I don't, there's not a whole lot there to disagree with. I think um, what gets tricky is okay. At what point, right? Does that does that baby then start to express a sinful will? Right. Well, right? that happens yeah, pretty early. It does. Then, that's the thing. Right. And then at what point does you know? And this is this is where the Presbyterian buddies come in, and they're like, "No problem, dog. Yeah. We just baptize them and baptize your babies. They're done." <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, "Man, that's nice and clean, but I just you yeah. know, I don't." You got all this issue with the the continuity of the covenants and things like that. I'm just like, I just don't see it, man. So. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I kind of hope I'm wrong about that, but I still just can't come to that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so as far as at what point they're held. Now, the camp I grew up in, they had a nice, clean answer to this. The age of accountability was, well, they would sometimes disagree. It's either 12 or it's 20 because with Jews, you know, you're considered an adult at 12. You're bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. You're a son of the yep. covenant, right? Um or sometimes they would say 20 because that's the age where the wilderness generation was cut off. Everybody below 20 dies, everybody or everybody below 20 lives and everybody above 20 dies because that was a generational marker. And so, you know, if if you're below 20, your parents are you know, spiritually responsible for you basically. So that that was a nice clean answer. None of it was based on the text though. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's like we're grabbing for something and that might be the best yeah. we can do, but there's just not a lot there. So the Lord knows the heart. It's what it is. Yeah. I would agree. Ready? You guys ready for the last question? I mean, at this point, why not, right? Sure. We've already screwed up everything else. <laughs> All righty. Question number three. From She sounds excited about this. I know. <laughs> from Fe- 
fed up Frederick. I am so tired of listening to people argue about eschatology. Is that what yeah. it's Eschatology. I never want to read Revelation again. All people do is fight about it. Can you please convince me to care so I don't hate this doctrine I'm supposed to love? <laughs> I understand this one. I get this. That's why I was excited for this question. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I am actually fed up yeah. Frederick. That is me. Fed up Frederick is me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we what's are the, one. What's the feminine form of Frederick? Francis? No. Francine? Uh, that could work. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. All right. I will convince you to love eschatology in the book of Revelation. Here you go. Jesus wins. Eschatology 101 is the victory of Christ. And yeah. here, here's what I want you to do, my man, Freddie. Go read Revelation again and go read Daniel and go read Zechariah. Okay. And as you read those, just look for the dominance of the Messiah. Totally. And you'll start to enjoy it. Yes. Right, like Daniel two, he's the rock that crushes the st- the the statue of many materials that represents different kingdoms. In Daniel nine, he's the Messiah. In Daniel eleven, he's just boss. And in Daniel twelve, he delivers. I mean, you know, whatever. So you, you get through all this, you get to Zechariah twelve and fourteen, and, and the whole book of Revelation is just about the awesomeness of Christ. So read it again without trying to look for the the decoding and the details and all that. You can get into that all you want, right? It's not bad to do that. That's a good thing. That's good study. But for now, just focus on the victory of the Messiah, and you'll start to love it. Yeah. I mean, the very first line of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants the things that must soon take place. I mean, we think that one one pastor friend of mine had said, we look at Revelation like we want it to be like this, this map of the future, at which it very well is. But what's the point of the book? The point of the book is Jesus is revealing himself to John on the island of Patmos so that he would go, okay, yeah, that's right. All this suffering is worth something. And so in the same sense, it's like, yeah, don't take your eyes off of Jesus when it comes to that. He is coming back. And that's, okay, does it does it look like a pre-mill thing? Does it look like an on-mill thing? Does it look like a post-mill thing? Does it look like a pre-trib, post-trib, pan-trib, whatever trib? You know, <laughs> it's like, come on. I mean, we, we can start to fight. We can, we can create arguments that don't necessarily have to be had mm-hmm. or they're in-house i don't want to say speculation because these are good guys that are on on the in these camps that but the thing is, is that don't let that distract you even from what our mission is priorities yeah i if, if jesus comes back and there's no millennium and i'm wrong because i'm a, I'm a historical pre-mill right so if if i'm wrong about that and yet i'm still doing my job making disciples great rock fine. and roll I will be there. I will, or I'll, I'll be dead, and then I'll be woken back up, and I'll be there. <laughs> However, that works. It's like cool, but that's but my, you know, even even what he told the disciples, yours is not to know the day or the hour. Mm-hmm. What's your job? Yeah, you follow me. Exactly. What is that to you? You follow me. Yeah, right? yeah. That was John twenty one, right? He's like, hey, but is, is John going to die? And he's like, look, all of this death, resurrection, end time stuff. What is that to you? You follow me. Now we. Let's not go too far with that. And like you certainly, said, right? Certainly. These these are good things to figure out because God gave us this text for a reason. Yep. And seeking you will find. We want to dig deep into there. However, we want to dig deep into there in the same with the same urgency for the same things and the same truths yep. and doctrines that that um, the Holy Spirit inspired these books to be written for. Yeah. So all of those doctrinal debates need to happen among friends as second tier doctrines. And they do need to happen. Yeah. But don't get distracted. Well, and, and to to that point also, we have to be careful about reading, for example, prophecy by holding a newspaper or the the interwebs in one hand and the Bible on the other and going, Oh, there it is. There's the there's the thing. I mean, you the signs and the ends of the times and things like that. Yeah, certainly they're going to be very clear things, and some of those things may even be happening now. I'm sure. not, and it's I, a good know, thing to pay attention. It's a good thing to pay attention, but but that we form a whole theological system based upon you know what we read in the newspaper. You know what's crazy? We could triple the size of this church right now as totally. far as as far as attendance on Sunday. Yeah, and you know where I'm going, right? Mm-hmm. If we just held a prophecy conference. And then I started preaching through Revelation on Sunday mornings and said, now here's what we make of the war in Israel with Hamas. Oh, totally. Yeah, we, we would, we'd get a new building oh, yeah. <laughs> overnight. Well, because you got the kings of the north and the kings of the south, right? Yeah. You got Gaza and you got whatever. And you got you Moscow. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I mean, who knows, right? So, like, there's, the thing is, if I were to get up on, you know, in the pulpit and say that, it could be true. 
it might be right. But guys have been thinking that for the last 2,000 years as they've been saying this. I mean, they, you know, this was, yeah. Revelation was apparently written with Nero in mind, and the stage was set. God just decided it wasn't time to send Jesus back yet, and so here we are. And, you know, I get this question sometimes, like, was Hitler the Antichrist? Probably! He was an Antichrist, absolutely. Yeah, but he, he was pretty well set up to be the yeah. guy that was the man of lawlessness, and, you know, Satan had his guy all set up, because Satan doesn't know the hour either, and God was just like, not my time yet. So... That is a mind blower. Satan himself is working to always build an antichrist. Oh, he's clueless. And and yet God's like, yeah, not my time. You're done. Yeah, no. You, I mean, you look at it. I think Alexander the Great was the antichrist. I think Antiochus Epiphanes was the antichrist. Certainly. I think I think Nero and probably Hitler and or you know uh, Mao was pretty well set up for it too in a lot of ways. You know, I, a lot of these guys could have been the guy, and the guy might be out there right now. Who knows? But the thing is, if we this is one of the things with preachers that I, I love and revere. I do think it's easy to get distracted on this stuff and say, okay, guys, this is the one. It's like, maybe. Well, but how, the, the point of the vagary in this stuff is that we always stay focused no matter what. Yeah, and Reformed theology, I mean, gosh, especially if you read the early Reformers, they they thought the Pope was, it was the Antichrist. Pope. It was yeah. totally the Pope. Well, that's in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, right? We, yeah. We, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, they uh, they came to me because we read the, the Second London uh, Baptist Confession of 1689 on Sunday mornings, and my guy that was reading came to me the, the day or a couple days before, and he's like, uh, are you sure you want me to read this section? And I'm like, why? What is it? And I looked at it, and it was like, and the Pope is the Antichrist. And I'm like, oh, I mean, it could be, right? I wouldn't put it past this guy. He's kind of a freaky deaky whack job, but you know, it might not be true. So let's yeah. not read it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just go then to the end of revelation, right? 23 or 22, excuse me. There's no 23rd chapter in revelation. <laughs> I just almost, I almost committed the very warning that I was about to, but there is um, a 29th read. chapter in acts apparently. So yeah. Okay. So he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. I mean... So we just bookended the book of Revelation with the yeah, glory of Christ. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. And that's what it's about. Come on now. Woo! Yeah, and this particular Jesus of whom we speak... Yes. ...deserves what, people? Disciples. Go and be oh, some. Yeah. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of Grace and Truth Community in West Richland, Washington. First John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. If you are enjoying Hungry for Wisdom, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. 